What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast, Season 2, Episode uh, whatever number episode we're on. Today is, a, today is a day to celebrate. Why? Because we have Steve freaking Jordan on the show. But I had some questions online from some people. People were saying, hey, this is one of our ways that we kind of connect with you every week. Because you put these out every week when you're in season, so to speak. So, you know, people have been asking me what I've been doing. I put out an album recently, just a week and a half ago, called The Striped Album. I'm super stoked about it. As a guitar player, it was really fun for me to bring in some other players as well, like Joe Satriani, David T. Walker, Kimbra is singing on it too. There's some really, and Tom Mish, if you guys haven't heard, that's a great episode. A couple episodes back, I did an interview with Tom Mish, and Joe Satriani was my very first interview for this podcast, which was really fun. So if you haven't checked out that, go check that out. I feel really good about what it is as an artistic statement and as a guitar-led and kind of lead rhythm player, because that's mostly what I am. I think it's a unique approach to putting out a guitar album. So check it out. All right, today on the episode, we've got Steve Jordan. So as many of you know, I do a lot of session work and playing on other people's albums as well, beyond just doing my own stuff and Wolfpack and Fearless Flyers. But I met Steve Jordan on a John Batiste session, and we start ta- we start the interview by talking about this where we met, and it was kind of informal how we just got on the Zoom call and we're talking. Oh yeah, that's right, that's where we met. Blah blah blah. This and this and this. So we're gonna talk about that. It's really fun in the session world. I got called to do that session. John's one of my really close friends, and he just said, "Hey man, I got these tunes. Come down to Sears Sound. Meet me there." We're going to record some stuff. Okay, whatever. I had no idea what we were going to record. I had no idea that Steve Jordan was going to be the drummer. And I didn't know that I was going to be the guitar player and the bass player on this session, which is one of the things that blows my mind right now is that there's a tune out there where Steve Jordan and I are the rhythm section. And that, <laughs> that, that to me, I, I'm, I, I can retire. I can retire. Anyways, I'm certain that most of you know who he is if you're listening to a music podcast. But for those of you who don't know who Steve Jordan is, let me list off a run of names of people that he's either produced, played with, written with, whatever. John Mayer, Keith Richards, Blues Brothers, B.B. King, George Benson, Don Henley, Springsteen, James Taylor, Cheryl Crow, Neil Young, Eric Clapton. He was in the Saturday Night Live band, Late Night with David Letterman band. He's been all over the place. He is a ledge upon legends. The altitude of this ledge is higher than Alex Honnell could climb in a week, okay? That's how high this ledge is amongst legends. All right, all right, whatever. So you've heard enough of me. Let's hear from Steve. This season of the Wong Notes podcast is sponsored by Neural DSP. All Wong Notes listeners get 30% off with the voucher code WONG. Neural DSP creates industry-leading guitar and bass plugins. The range includes signature plugins from some of the best modern guitarists, such as... Corey Wong, Pliny, Adam Nolly Getgood, and Tozen Abasi. The archetype Corey Wong gives you everything from crystal clear tones to edge of breakup blues tones, whereas the 14 amp series delivers all the crushing modern metal tones you could possibly need. And that nameless is my favorite Marshall amp ever. There's a plug in here for every type of player, and you can get a 14-day free trial for every single one of them without even entering your credit card details. Find me another company doing that. Once you've found the ones you like, you get that 30% off your purchase by entering the code WONG at checkout. How are you? 
I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I see. What do you got back there? You got no that guitar there is looking like a Tysco, but not really that red one. Ah, that's this Italian builder in well in Italy <laughs> named Bruno Bacci. <laughs> he makes these baritone guitars that are super dope. That look. That's very cool. That looks, and he would be an Italian guitar maker because it's very Goya, very Tysco Del Rey. Absolutely. Right. Now, let's see what else you got, baby. You got it like... Uh, I got the Joe Dart Signature Music Man Bass. Right, right, right. I got the uh, Fender American Ultra Series Strat. Mm -hmm. I got my J Bass. That's my workhorse when I'm playing bass. Then I got a couple... I got a few other Strats because I'm a Strat guy. You're a Strat guy. You are a Strat guy. You know, dude. <laughs> you know, dude. I'm a Strat guy. I don't know if you remember this or not we've met we played together on a john batiste john session. session yeah that's right over that's at right. uh what studio was that at sears sound that's right uh the original hit factory that's right on 48th street between 8th and 9th avenues in manhattan that was a fun day man it was a fun day it was a good that was a good uh good session i remember that last song that we cut had a lot of energy it was very good whatever happened to that stuff do you know I'm sure he's going to put it out. You know, 2020 is a weird year, so people are moving release dates around and whatnot. You know, right. I, don't, I don't know. It was a fun day, though. It was a fun day. We cut two tunes, right? We cut a... We yeah, cut there was a, that slow joint called Cry. Right, right, right. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. you listen. we listened down to that track, and you go, yeah, 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 I know what I'm going to do on this one. Let's go in there. <laughs> you just start playing the groove, and you're like, all right, cats, you ready? Press record. You go one, two, cut, boom, cut. This cat didn't play a single fill other than this little ringle, boom, 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 going into the bridge. You played the same thing the whole time, and it felt so good, man. Hypnosis. I know it was crazy. John and I were looking at each other like, "Oh my gosh, that's the feel." That was uh, a fun session. It was a good song. It was a good song. You know, the songs dictate what you do. Yeah. No. So it was like, okay, it's very clear what yeah. is called for. So it was fun. Yeah. And then the second tune had this crazy little uh, Detroit type of vibe to it, which was really a lot of fun. Well, we're talking about this session. I think it's okay to start like that. It's weird. You know, we're, we're some semi-informal, but we're a publication, so we're, we're keeping it real. So uh, the, the thing about interviewing you is I could interview you as a producer I could interview you as a session drummer, as a touring drummer, as a music historian, but the only thing I can interview you as is Steve Jordan, because there's only one of you. Your experience and your talent and wisdom is insane. Oh, that's very sweet, very kind. Um, as just an accumulation of uh, a lot of years now, it's, it seems like it was just yesterday that I did my very first session in New York at Electric Lady uh, Studio B. I remember it like it was yesterday. So when I look at the amount of time that we've been doing this thing, it's really funny. It's kind of like uh, this quarantine thing, which has only it's been like six, seven months. Seems like it could be a long time or just yesterday. <laughs> time yeah. is a very strange thing. You can stretch time. You can truncate time you know whatever that's that's you know and, um so it, it, like i said it seems like it was only yesterday but it's been several decades of very being at the right place at the right time and 
you know, being a, a New York resident, you know, sure. and, and being in New York, meeting all the people that you meet, knowing that in New York, especially in New York City, uh, the, the best players in the world are here. So you always either learning from them or a friendly competition with them because you're trying to work and you're always meeting people. And one of the first things that I said to myself when I was in high school, when I knew that this is what I wanted to do, was I, I wanted to play with everybody I could possibly could play with. And yeah. only in New York did that happen. So I read that you went to High School of Music and Arts. Is that what it's yeah. called? Yeah, it's Fiorello H. LaGuardia High School of Music and Art. Yeah. I interviewed Bela Fleck. And he said he went to that school along with Marcus Miller and Omar Hakim, mm -hmm. Kenny Washington. That sounds like an insane high school. That's like a high school that they should be making a TV show about. Well, this is funny because the TV show Fame was made about our annex, which was performing arts. But the main school was music and art. And when I went to the school, Omar, Omar and, and, and Marcus came in a year after me. Yeah. Uh, but when I was going to the school, we had Nat Adderley Jr., uh, Angela Bofield, Buddy Williams, uh, Noel Pointer, uh, David Valentine. Just, you know, basically a lot of professionals, you know, yeah. and we were right in the middle of City College. So it was a very collegiate atmosphere because of the curriculum because we first of all you have to audition to get into the school yeah so the whole curriculum was like a, at a higher it was higher education sure or because you were being trained to actually go into the profession and we were right in the middle of city college so we had college students coming to our school at the same time so it was like being on campus is a very unusual uh situation Sounds and, incredible. Uh, yeah, everybody was, uh, you know, just professional. You were surrounded by professionals in a school. It was very strange. You've done a lot of sessions as a drummer. The drummer's role is kind of interesting because, well, it's interesting to me because you have to pay attention to so many things. Right. You have to pay attention to the singer or whatever the lead thing is. It's not always a vocal tune. And then you uh, have to be paying attention to what the other rhythmic instruments are doing, what all the other elements are that are contributing to it, and deciding how to affect the momentum and put fence posts around sections. Do you feel like that is what gives you an upper edge as a producer? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I talk about this a lot, you know, in uh, when I do clinics or classes and stuff. Uh, when you're a drummer, primarily what happens on a session is the drummer is the seat that everybody looks to what the things are going right or conversely when things are going wrong. <laughs> yeah. So if something's not happening, the first person they look at is the drummer, you know, what's going on. Yeah. So it's really up to the drummer to figure out what's going on well in advance of even the pr person producing the session, because you know that you're going to be the first one to be blamed for something. Yeah. So it's up to you. It's up incumbent upon you to figure out what's going on, who's playing on top of the beat or behind the beat, what's happening here, why, who's not listening to the song, what you're not getting, what you need to implement to have the session be successful uh, without, obviously without undermining the producer or, you know, or any of the players, you know, it's a, it's a, you're making a pack with uh, 
goodwill to make sure that the session comes out successfully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when in a studio, oftentimes we are asked to make something, come up with something on the spot that is iconic because recordings will live on seemingly forever. I'm curious on your take on what makes a part or what makes a thing iconic. I think uh, something genuine, something honest, something that is timeless is usually very organic and not really ego-driven. It's more like um, you are um, giving yourself up to the music. Mm -hmm. Then that dictates what you play, and then that lives on. When you try to overthink about what you're going to do to something to make it this or that, that gets in the way of the actual honest, organic flow of the music. Before I had that revelation, as a young drummer, I would hear a thing, song and think, okay, what beat am I going to play on this? You know, I got to come up mm. with something really cool. But what beat, yeah. you know, you know, and, you know, and all that kind of thing, you know, the latest beat down is going to be amazing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> had nothing to do with the song, you know, you know. Sure. But, but I was going to play this beat that was going to be so bad that, you know, like, and that's not music. That's just not, and that goes for any uh, instrument. Yeah. What am I going to play that's going to be so great? That's going to be, well, you haven't even heard the song. What are you, what are you talking? Mm. So that gets in the way of, of everybody communicating with one another musically, because you've already decided that this is the beat you're going to play on the tune, whether the tune calls for it or not. Yeah. You know, this is what, you know, and that's just no way to make real music. And that uh, decision that you grow into, that's a, a experience tells you that that that's where you need to be. That's, you know, so that for getting back to the beginning of our conversation, when I heard the song that you and I played on Cry, I knew what to play because the music told me what to play. Mm. And it wasn't based on anything other than what's best for the song. Now, it was so simple that, you know, if you're completely crazy or ego-driven about your prowess or what you think will show you off in your best light or something, maybe you wouldn't want to play something that simple. Mm -hmm. But as I always say, simplicity is not stupidity. It doesn't mean that you can't do it or whatever. It's the right thing for the song. So as you said, I only played one fill. That's probably one fill too many. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, and uh, that's what the music called for. So that's that's how I go about it. I think that's the way you got to go about doing it. I love that. And what about for an artist or a creator? We talked about what makes a thing or a part iconic, but you've worked with so many icons as artists and you yourself, what is it that makes an icon as an artist? Well, I think, a body of work that is really uh, timeless and not um, fad-driven. Mm. Um, You've said that that phrase twice now regarding an iconic thing and an icon as a legend, timeless. Right. How do you quantify or how do you objectify? Okay, so for me, like I can, I don't try to when I'm listening to music, the music of today or whatever. I don't look. I don't even think of things in that term like the music of today or whatever i just play what i honestly feel and what i love to hear mm -hmm. 
And usually that means it's timeless because I love to hear Muddy Waters, but I also love to hear the Beatles, but I love to hear Chuck D. I love to, you know, so it spans decades and it all comes from the same place to me, the stuff that really resonates with me. I don't separate or categorize as 60s music or 50s music or this or that. It's just great music, you know, like Louis and Duke said, you know, there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. Yeah. I love to listen to Mozart and I love to listen to Keith Richards. Yeah. That's timeless. Yeah. So with many of these legends that you've played with or produced, you mentioned Keith Richards, playing with him, producing him, Eric Clapton, James Taylor, Robert Cray, Sheryl Crow, John Mayer, and then on the other side of it, George Benson, my hero, John Schofield, another one of my heroes, Mike Stern, Herbie Hancock, which, you know, those sometimes it's like, ah, you're either in this or that, or you're either studio or you're live. Right. You know, you've, you've crossed over so many different places that you're quote unquote, not supposed to, or not able to do right. in those, with those kind of artists and with your perspective as a musician, an artist yourself, and as a producer, cats at that level. What are they looking for that other artists just aren't? Well, they're looking for somebody who is going to approach the music honestly and from the heart. That's why I have fun playing with all types of musicians because there's no, I don't categorize music. People who really love music really don't categorize music. Like I would have loved the opportunity to play with George Jones if I had the opportunity to, to do that. Yeah. You know, that that would have been an amazing uh, situation. I play the same way with Keith Richards as I play with Sonny Rollins. I would have loved to play with, I mean, I did get a chance to, to work on a Joey Ramone thing. I mean, I love all kinds of things because it's all the same to me. Yeah. Like, for instance, so when Megan Voss and I do the verbs, we have love for all types of music. Mm -hmm. You know, we listen to everything, but our band is is out of a kind of a pop, pop rock, crunch, punk, you know, yeah. whatever kind of thing, because our love for popular music and the fact that we both we have a history in classical music and this and that. So we, we love everything. We don't really bag stuff, you know, so all that musical knowledge and love for these things seeps into our music. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's how I look at it. I don't look at it like, oh, I'm going to put my jazz head on. Yeah. Um, when I'm playing with this person and I'm going to put my rock head on when I'm playing. I play the same way. Yeah. I play the same exact way. You know, I listen to the song. What does the song ask for? Like, yeah. for instance, when I, uh, for, for a while, at <laughs> the beginning of this century, um, <laughs> I was doing a lot of stuff and um, there was something that I, I had longed to do that I hadn't done in a while. And that was play quote unquote straight ahead jazz, which is, it was just the opportunity. There wasn't, I don't want to just play with anyone for the sake of playing with anyone, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it was just one of those things that I hadn't done in a while. And, and it does take a certain amount of proficiency to do, you know, you can't just, I'm not doing it for a while. Just do it like it was yeah. yesterday. I mean, some people can. I mean, Jack DeJanette can. You know I mean? <laughs> so I was uh, 
you know, doing a lot of production. And um, I got a call from Sonny Rollins. And he said, uh, 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 Steve, um, uh, I'm doing some gigs. Uh, I got a tour coming up. Uh, are you available? Now, I've been playing with Sonny off and on since 1980. Mm-hmm. And I haven't played with him in a while. And that, to me, is one of the ultimate challenges of playing with an icon, a living legend, the greatest living jazz musician. But not only that, one of the greatest, one of the greatest living musicians, period. Yeah. And composers. and <laughs> So it's a responsibility. Yeah. It's not just a gig. It's a responsibility. You don't want to go out and embarrass yourself and embarrass him at the same time. I love that. So... I, I didn't really know if I could cut it. And um, uh, Megan said, uh, and so I said, let me call you back. Um, I'm not sure. I got to check my schedule. And she looked at me. She was like, dude, you know, you got to call me. You know, you got to do this, right? Yeah. So I called. And then, so what I did was I went back into the quote unquote woodshed. And I said, well, if I'm going to play with Sonny now, I need to bring something to the table here uh, because the last time I had played with him it was on a record uh, here's to the people and I wasn't really crazy about the way I played on that record a lot of people liked it but I wasn't really crazy about that and <clears throat> there are two drummers on the record uh, Jack DeJanette and myself you know wow and Jack DeJanette played incredibly great you know I basically thought I sucked you know so I was like not going to have that happen again so I decided to go back into the shed, listen to some stuff that I listened to when I was like eight years old. Like the first jazz record that I really loved on my own was Seven Steps to Heaven. You know, Tony Williams was 17. He created the bar for most drummers of this generation to how what to strive for at a certain age you know, and everything, you know. And a lot of the music, you know, it was one of my favorite albums ever. And then I did some more research into Sonny, and I realized that the with all the great drummers that he's played with, from Max Roach to Shelly Mann to Tony, that um, Roy Haynes, of course, Kenny Clark, the, the 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 killer combination for me was his collaboration with Philly Joe Jones, who is who, who was a genius. You know, he played incredible drums. He also played an incredible piano. He was a composer. Blah blah blah. blah. You know, they did a couple of records where it's just sax and drums. Wow. And Philly Joe is so incredible. He actually created a vocabulary that most drummers use mm-hmm. in the kind of genre of bebop, you know, way before Tony Williams was yeah. born, you know, you know, not born, but, you know, whatever. So I really shed on him and uh, I listened to a lot of Monk and the way Ben Riley played with Monk and the simplicity there. And this is before I realized about the friendship that Monk and Sonny Rollins had, but it made sense. They seemed to be paired, you know? So I wanted to bring some of that to, to the band, you know, this new band that he was forming to do this tour. That was, uh, that was really important to me. So I was able to uh, do the gig and feel like I was bringing something to the table and not just uh, some gratuitous drumming. Sure. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and here again, he is, you know, he wrote the, the most famous Calypso, St. Thomas. St. Thomas. And, yeah. And, and he, uh, you know, his roots are in the Caribbean and so are mine. So 
I love a good Calypso. So we played like three Calypsos a night at least. So it wasn't wow. just straight ahead bebop. We played Calypso because it's all the same. Yeah. You know what I sure. mean? And that's my point going back to the great musicians don't look at just this type of music or that type of music. You know, that's why Ray Charles could do that country record, but he didn't think of it as country record. He thought of this is a record of great songs. Mm. I did a, I worked on a movie called Lightning in a Bottle, and um, I had a lot of blues icons in it. It was a story, you know, about these great blues musicians, you know, rhythm and blues musicians. And Buddy Guy told me a story. He said, you know, when he was growing up, they had a radio, and they could only get one station, and they, they got the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. So that's what he was listening to. Wow. So that's what I mean. You, music is a universal language. Mm -hmm. Most musicians who really want to make a mark don't really want to just do just one thing. They want to do something that can communicate with anybody anywhere. Absolutely. And what's interesting, too, is that you're basically also in this story telling me that you have a never-ending, relentless pursuit to serve the thing in its absolute best way. You're not just studying right. the cat's music. You're studying the cat, the roots of where that cat got their influence. Right. And right. you're also bringing in your own thing and your own energy and your own upbringing to that. I right. love that. Right. I love yeah. that. Well, you've played with so many of these artists. It is insane and amazing. You've seen many of them. You've seen many artists go through an evolution in their artistic pursuit Right. On the personal and on the musical level, how do you support and guide an artist who's developing their voice or who's exploring new territory? One example being John Mayer going from the pop thing into the trio, into my favorite pop album of all time, or of this time, uh, Continuum, and, continuing, and then moving forward and, and exploring so many different territories. How do you personally and musically help support somebody like that well for me it's a first of all the thing about um making music with these people is that i'm a fan of making good music so it's very exciting yeah to be playing on something that is good yeah it's very exciting i'm very very fortunate over the last several decades that i've been able to play on stuff that's really good yeah with really good people so that you never get tired of and when i Started working with John, um, and we did a lot of one-off stuff before we started working as a team on his stuff. I always had fun working with John. His energy was relentless in pursuit to get better. And, to, and that, to me, was very exciting to watch somebody with that much um, vim and vigor go after the thing, you know? Yeah. And so to watch him get better, as I, I have a bird's eye view of how he's growing, is very exciting. You know, I would say, wow, this is really something. I've heard him sound like this a year or two ago, and now he sounds like this. This is really wow. This song was like this, but now the songwriting is like this. Wow, that's really fantastic. And that is very cool. It's very cool to, to be a part of something like that. Being around good musical energy where people are trying to find the thing can be very magnetic, but also it, it can be just this creative flower that keeps blossoming 
to the, to those that are around the situation. Yeah, you know, to you know, in in regards to continuum, his quest to really speak for himself was really the thing. You know, after closely working with a couple of people on a couple of previous albums, mm-hmm. he wanted to make his mark, his voice be the voice. Yeah, um, uh, speaking having the songs come out the way he wanted them to come out as opposed to somebody else's vision. And that was very exciting because it was, um, it was a risk. It was a risk for the label, but it wasn't, if you're a music maker and you write the music and, and you believe in the music, then it's not a risk. It's, 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 it's a necessity, Mm -hmm. but in the business, it becomes a risk. Yeah. So it was a, a risk for some higher ops to go okay john and steve are going to produce this record okay let's see well they've never produced a record together before um this is gonna be where we're gonna let them do this yeah <laughs> <laughs> so we did a couple well, how we did it was the deal was we do the first three songs and see what happens what are the first three you guys did the first couple of tunes actually didn't get used but they're really great and <laughs> one song in particular was so good he didn't want to put it out because he felt like he was going to have to do it the rest of his life what yeah <clears throat> so he didn't use it and one day i hope it comes out because i'm not going to give away the title or anything when it does come out he knows what i'm talking about it's such a good song but it would be played at everyone's wedding you know i mean it's one of those types of songs and it was just and i you know when you make it when you're cutting a song like that you go wow this is amazing yeah and it was one of those kind of things where it was gonna it was almost like too amazing so we yeah. didn't use that can you imagine if earth wind and fire didn't put out september right right <laughs> yeah. like what would we dance to at weddings what would be at the ending scene of night at the museum it's just like hey, we need that was- song <laughs> This was um this was kind of like a moderate tempo ballad type of thing, love song kind of thing. It would be the first dance at the wedding. It would Ooh. be one of those. Well, we did do uh, one of the first three was Trust Myself. Mm. And in fact, we went in the studio the night of, there was a telethon for ty- Typhoon that had happened in the Far East. Uh, is that when you guys played Sissy Strut? No, no, that would no. We played uh, Axis Bold as Love as a trio. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I I know what you're talking about. I've seen that. And that was the first night. One of the first one of the first nights we went in the studio, and we went from from NBC Studios into uh, cutting this a uh, right track, and we cut Axis Bold as Love that night. Wow. And then uh, Pino was only supposed to be available for the one day or something. Uh, I had gotten Willie Weeks to play the next day. And so we had both Pino and Willie Weeks in the studio (laughs) together. And that's how we have, that's why they both play on Trust Myself. Wow, that's amazing. Willie Weeks is playing the stuff down low. Yeah. And Pino's playing the stuff up high. That's so dope. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty pretty wild. It was a pretty cool session. That is an iconic envelope filter song for guitar players that's like a that's one of those yo you got that trust myself tone it's like oh okay okay now that's an insane tone yeah we had to chase that down too because i think on the demo that he did he had you know dialed in and then we had to find it 
again the exact thing yeah to get it in the studio because it was one of these boxes i can't remember the name of the box but you know it was yeah. and john john you know used to make his own pedals and stuff at home when he was a kid so he's really in the boxes yeah, and stuff. yeah. so so he's you know so he had this thing dialed in there was like a sequencer in it and something as well you know it was mm. like kind of this whole thing so we was had it to the chase adrenaline that does that yeah sound? yeah yeah the adrenaline. adrenaline yeah that thing's that weird because it starts kind of on its own so like if the tempo like it has its own clock so if you're not on that clock, yeah. I remember I had one of those pedals once and it's got great sounds, but it's like you have to hit it, the tempo, and then let the track hit at the same time or you have to try yeah, to midi, that's why, midi that's clock why it. That's why it was so tr tricky to get, but you know, yeah. John, you know, he was into it, so he was able to pull it off. That's a dope pedal, but it's really hard to hard to use. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, we believe me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. That's yeah, the amazing. adrenaline, yeah, absolutely. But it sounds great. Yeah. And like you said, everybody is like, can you get that tone? Yep. People have been chasing that tone for a lot longer than however long it took you guys to get it in the studio that day. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. That is for sure. All right, this is some good conversation. I got to remind you, though, have you guys not gone to that Neural DSP website yet? You got to go check it out. Use that 30% off coupon, Wong. That's my last name. And while you're there, check out the Archetype Corey Wong plugin. I guarantee you, if you are looking for good, clean, or edge of breakup tones, this is the plugin for you. There's three different amps, a pedal board, EQ, three different cabs. Come on! You can use it live, you can use it in the studio. There's that 14 day free trial. Check out all the plugins and let me know which one's your favorite. You talked about ego and your approach to the way that you play. But when you are in the producer's chair and when you're sitting right next to the artist and there's somebody else on the session who's showing up with their own agenda, showing up with their own ego, how do you as somebody who's kind of in charge or actually in charge, how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I'm very fortunate. I haven't had to deal with that in a long time because part of being a producer is hiring the right people. You don't do like Donald Trump and hire all the best people and they're all criminals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you hire the best people and most of the people are always on the same page where they want to get the best results for the project yeah so i i don't really have to deal with that now people are quirky of course so you know but as a producer that's part of your job to manage the quirks mm -hmm. without it's not a chore to manage the quirk is part of your job it's the job description if you want to be a producer this is what you have to do this is one of the things you do yeah. If you don't like it, don't produce. Yeah. Because it's not just like, oh, go in and get credit for, you know, making a great record. There's a lot more to it. And all the producers, the, the term, a lot of people have their own way of producing. Some people make a great cup of coffee. Some people write out the arrangements. Some people are engineers. Some people are great players. You know, there are a lot of different uh, approaches you can have as a producer. It's not just a description where you have to check every box on a thing. Yeah. Some boxes go unchecked. I know I've, I've, I've seen some producers that I read their names on records for years as a kid. And then I worked with them and like they didn't do anything. Yeah. Then there were people that I, you know, read that really, oh, I see. I learned a lot from people like, uh, 
Tommy LaPuma, Phil Ramone, you know, two of the greatest producers of all time. I learned a lot from them. I worked with them and they were very generous with sharing their knowledge. Yeah. It seems to me that the cats that really have that kind of thing together are generous with it because right. they know that their thing is their thing and the knowledge is not the thing that you steal. It's the way that you use it. Exactly. The, the people that are not insecure have no problem with sharing good information with other people so that they can grow. Yeah. Well, you and I met on the John Batiste session, like we're talking about, and John is the band leader for The Late Show. And I play with him a fair amount on there. And that's a fun, wild, weird gig. And it's awesome. But uh, people think maybe different things about it than what it really is. And you played on it when it was The Letterman Show, Letterman's Late Show. Can you talk about your experience there a little bit? And how, how long were you on there? What was your What were you doing at the time there? I was in a band called the 24th Street Band with Will Lee, Hiram Bullock, and Clifford Carter, Woo. and myself. And we uh, we had a good little run there in the in the in the late seventies, and we were big in Japan. And nice. uh, so <laughs> um, we we had a good time playing together. We also played on a lot of records together. Mm-hmm. And then the band broke up about 1980 and um paul schaefer was uh, approached to uh be musical director on this show paul and i were friends and in fact i had gotten paul to produce one of our albums one of the 24 street band albums called bokatachi it was a live record but i um since i was in the blues brothers with paul and we had produced an uh worked on a number one live record Mm -hmm. um i knew that he had experience in getting the best out of a live record yeah so i asked him to uh produce the record with us which he did so he had a relationship with the band yeah as well so um when he got called to do letterman he he came to me first and uh said do you want to do this thing with me and I said, sure. And he said, well, who should we get? I said, well, we should get the band. I mean, the 24s, we're already a band. Yeah. And then we can hit the ground running. And uh, and that's basically what we did. So but basically, Paul re- replaced Clifford. Mm. And we went on as a four-piece. First four-piece band ever on, on late-night television. Yeah. We changed the whole uh, scope of music and television uh, for talk shows. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. That band is ridiculous. Yeah. Hiram was such a great guitar player. Yeah, he, he is brilliant. And uh, I met Hiram in uh, 76 or something like that. When he first came to New York, he uh, he kind of came into New York, took New York by storm. He and Clifford and Billy Bowker and Mark Egan mm. on bass. They, were, they have a band called the PH Factor. They were backing up phyllis hyman the great phyllis, the late great phyllis hyman yeah they all came up from miami they were going to the university of miami where willie's father was the dean of music willie went to the university of miami jaco pistorius patty schialfa wow all they, they were all down there and they all came up to new york and i ended up playing with the ph factor my first one of my first Gigs was playing with Phyllis Hyman at the checkerboard, the 
Checkmate Lounge in the in Miami, Florida. Wow. And uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's that's how that band became. Uh, you know, the Letterman Band, basically. You know, it's like yeah. uh, we were doing that, and uh, I stayed <clears throat> for about um, eighty five, eighty six, something like that. I had to leave. You know, I was getting a little tedious for sure. me. Um, and I was not contractually bound, so I could do other stuff. So I would go mm-hmm. off. I would go to L.A., make a Neil Young record or Don Henley record, or go to Paris and work with the Stones and Arcadia, and then come back. Yeah. And started to get a little tricky, you know, because I was always leaving. So then it was time to move on, you know. Yeah. Sure. But, uh, you know, for me, the first year of the show was the best year of the show because we played with James Brown. And the James Brown appearance in 82 was amazing. And basically there was no way to top that show. I mean, that was it, you know? So there was no, you know, we played with Sly afterwards. We did, we played with BB King. We played with a lot of great people, you know, from Whitney Houston to, you know, with everybody, we played with everybody, but the James Brown appearance, the very first one was so amazing that, um, there was really nowhere to go from there. <laughs> so, all right, we did it. We did it. We're I, out. I'm, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm done, you know? Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So a lot of, this is for a, this is, this is a guitar podcast and it's Premier Guitar Magazine. Yeah. You've worked with so many guitar players. What is something that most guitar players that are almost there, almost got the thing together, what are some things that cats? That just have to have together that usually, or uh, it's a, or what's something common that a lot of guitar players don't have that they need to have on the musical or even just the mindset front? Well, I think this goes true for every uh, musician who plays any instrument. You have to have a sound. Every great player has a sound. Yeah. If you don't have a sound, it doesn't mean you have to have a lot of chops or anything. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a sound. Yeah. And that's uh, that to me is the most important thing. And then you have to have ears to um, hear what other people, you have to be a good listener because uh, making music is about listening to other people. Yeah. You have to have a sound, you have to listen, and then you have to have a groove. And that's the trifecta, your sound, your groove, and your ears. I love that. That is a perfect answer. Wisdom dropping right there, man. <laughs> I like that. Well, hey, you just mentioned a sound, a groove, and ears, and you also talked about a Sonny Rollins duo album. You have a new album with Mixmaster Mike that has a sound, has a groove. It's a duo thing. It's got all this interesting stuff happening. Can you tell me, tell us all about that record, how you guys kind of came up with that sound? Cause the drum sound on that is insane. And just the concept is really cool. Well, uh, beat Odyssey 2020 on JV records, which, uh, you know, the label that Megan and I have, yeah, uh, which we have a couple of really good records on besides the verbs material on JV. We also have a, Robert Crane High Rhythm uh, record on there, yeah. and we'll be having in the in the new year. We're going to be releasing um, another Verbs record called Garage Sale, and we also will be releasing a Tony Joe White record. 
Mm. So those are two records I'm very excited about. Um, but the collaboration with Mike and I started back in uh, about 2014 when um, I was the musical director for the Primetime Emmy Awards. Yeah. And the year before, in 2013, I had added a, a DJ to the orchestra. I wanted to give it a lift and something that had never been done on television where the orchestra had a DJ in it. Yeah. And it was good. The guy was really good and everything like that. And I knew we were doing something new, something fresh. Michael Bearden had done a, a Kennedy Center, Kennedy Center Awards uh, thing uh, the following year, a uh, tribute to Herbie Hancock. Yep. And uh, Mixmaster Mike was on the uh on that segment on the and perform rocket mm -hmm. with herbie and michael called me he said man we gotta have Mixmaster mike be the dj i said okay great you know i mean yeah all right so um <laughs> and you know i'd known of him from his work with the bc boys and stuff but i i wasn't really totally aware of the depth of his musicality Hmm. That's the kind of stuff that you can only find out by working with a person. Yeah. Up close and personal. So anyway, so he joined the band in 2014 and immediately the thing just took off. Okay. He hmm. was from the downbeat. People had never heard a DJ, a turntablist do what he was doing in the confines of an orchestra. And that was really something. And, and then so one thing led to another. First of all, he's a great person. So we struck up an immediate friendship. And everybody in the orchestra, everybody was great. So, uh, you know, we a lot of camaraderie in the orchestra. And um, then he and I started doing, you know, part of the job as the MD is to create cues for different segments yeah. of yeah. the television program. And I started, I needed to create a couple of cues for a couple of segments and I thought, you know, it'd be cool to have it be the, you know, just Mike and I go on and cut a couple of things. So we, we did a couple of cues. They were actually my favorite cues of the whole evening. And then we started thinking about it more. And then we said, we could do this. We could do more of this. Why don't we just cut a bunch of stuff and then give it to some DJs? I mean, yeah. I mean you know, some rappers rather and, and uh, MCs. And then, so we, and we thought, wow, yeah, that could be that we could just, just pick some people and just give them tracks and then see what they want to do with them. Yeah. And then we kept cutting and every time we had a show or uh, anytime we had to be in the studio, we would stay longer and cut some more stuff. And then we started to accumulate all of this stuff. And then we thought, well, we, we don't want to give this stuff away now. We, this is really good. And so, you know, it just evolved in a very, I, you know, organic manner where then all of a sudden we had all of this material and we had to do something with it. We said, we need to put this out because it's very cinematic. So we, we even worked on, uh, we even thought about giving some stuff to, for it to be a score uh, to a movie that a, a person was working on that we knew that really loved what we were doing. Yeah. And, and and we will definitely be doing scores for people, you know, without question. But um, collection of the songs, this is just, you know, this is only a quarter of the stuff that we recorded. But we went through the catalog of uh, stuff we recorded 
and then uh, Mike uh, took it and uh, kind of named the tunes, <laughs> and, you know. Yeah. And then did his thing, and then we came back. But basically, ninety percent of everything is live. The other ten percent is just maybe a couple of edits here and there. Sure. And for you know, and then I I mastered it, and and, and uh, you know, we, Mike and I went to L.A. and mixed it. And, you know, we recorded it. The bulk of the stuff was recorded at this place that no longer exists now uh, called Sage Sound Studios in Los Angeles. A really cool little spot okay. that, you know, has been bought. You know, the block was bought by a hotel. The building ah. was gone, you know, like what's <laughs> happening in Los Angeles now. So it was really yeah. terrible. Um, but it was a really cool studio. And the engineer was uh, Chris Steffen. And he's a really, really, really excellent engineer. And, uh, you know, we went and just recorded the stuff. And basically, the way we recorded it is the way that it sounds, you know? Amazing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's part of the thing, too, to inspire you. You want to get the sound first. That's what I do in the studio with, with people. I don't go, okay, we'll cut it and then we'll work on the sound later. No, 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 no. That's not the way to do it. Mm. You got to remember that most great records that we love, they were recorded live or live to two track or maybe three tracks. Even before there was four track and eight track. And so you had to get the sounds just like it's important about mic placement. You know, that's why it's so fantastic to pick somebody's brain like Al Schmidt, who's all about mic placement. Yeah. You know, a lot of engineers these days, they don't even know how to mic a freaking drum or whatever, or where to put the good mic in front of a guitar amp or what, you know, they have no idea. They've been using samples for so long and plugins. They got no idea how things work, you know, and there's nothing virtual that is as good as something that's real. We got the sounds that you hear. Those are the sounds that we, we heard while we were playing, which inspired us to play what we played. Yes. That's so cool. Yeah, the sound is amazing on it. If for anybody listening who hasn't checked it out, you got to listen cuz it's it the sound is incredible. Thank you. And you know, the thing with Mike being not a normal DJ, he's he, you know, he's a musicologist. He's dropping stuff that no, most people don't even know exists, you know. Yeah. Whoa. <clears throat> and it's very very cool, you know. So it's very inspiring, you know. You're playing and you hear this thing, whoa, and then he's doing this thing and like, yeah. whoa, you know. And it's uh, it's like that. It's very you know improvisational, and so and which is the you know which is the heart and soul of jazz. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. You know. So it's got that element in it. So you you know, and most you know, look, hip hop is you know basically the basis of hip hop is you're using samples of great either jazz or R and B records. Yeah. Right. So. It's a complete, totally, you know, yeah. total, full circle. I love that. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. One last question before we go, because you brought up hip hop, you brought up jazz. We've talked about pop, R and B, and the idea of fads, right? And groove, groove, and time feel in general. Of course, everybody feels it differently. I'm from Minneapolis, so I feel things. The I've learned under Michael Bland. I feel time the way that Michael Bland taught me to feel time (laughs) down the center, sometimes pushing a little bit to get the energy. There's some cats in Philly that feel things a different way. There's cats in London that feel things a different way. 
But it feels like also just in certain generations, there's time feel things. You listen to hip hop from the 90s, stuff's way more on top than it is now. And Mm -hmm. you listen to certain types of grooves that are quote unquote cool now. And there's the cats that really pull it off and it sounds legit and it sounds and feels incredible the way that you or Nate Smith or Chris Dave or Questlove, there's a lot of cats that pull off certain time feels that they can do. Right. But then the college thing happens where people want to recreate that. And it's like, it's kind of like on paper that is the groove, but it like (laughs) doesn't do the thing. Yeah. It's tricky. It's, It's a very personal thing. It's part of your heartbeat actually. So what Chris Dave does and what Quest does, it's very personal to them. Yeah. You know, it's like kind of like, don't try this at home. (laughs) That's a great... You know, when I hear people trying to imitate them, it's rough, you know? Yes. Because it's just not, it's not real. It's too contrived and you don't know the reason why they are doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. It's very personal. It's like a fluctuating heartbeat. It's like you, it's your own, and you don't want to have you don't want to pass that on to somebody else if you don't have the right medic. Yeah. So, you what's know? the difference in that case between influence and personal voice? Well, you can you the influence is okay. Somebody is is creating something that's very unique to them, so it's up to you to create something that's very unique to yourself. Mm. You know, that's a mic drop moment right there, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's it. You know, that's basically it. But don't try to imitate the. Now, first of all, everybody tries to imitate somebody when they're coming up. That's only natural. That's yeah. what you do mm-hmm. before you find your own voice. I mean, when I was first when I was first doing sessions, I could sound exactly like Harvey Mason and Steve Gatt. You know, that was that's who I like. I shed them. And before that, I in high school. I was a Dave Garibaldi fanatic, you know? So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, like when Dave Garibaldi left tower of power, I wrote a letter to the band. Like I'm the person that has to really? replace it. <laughs> I never sent it, but that's how I felt, you know? So you go through that, you know, you go through that at, when you're, as you're trying to find your voice. And then you, you, one day something clicks, you know, because you worked on it enough, you, you got to keep working. So it's like that 10,000 hour thing is yeah. all of a sudden something happens and then you're doing something that you've been trying to do for a long time and you weren't able to do it. And then all of a sudden you can do it Yeah, and you can't even believe it and you do it again. <laughs> you know, wow. You know, and then that gives you confidence to keep going because there are times when you're going, Oh, I'm never going to be any good. Yeah. You know, should I be doing something else? I'm never going to be any good. But then all of a sudden you keep doing, you keep doing, you keep doing. And then one day it's like, I got it. Yeah. And then you keep moving. You keep working because it's never ending. It's a never ending quest. It never stops. Well, speaking of stopping, I think we should stop the podcast and let you get back to your day. But thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your wisdom with us, man. This is really, really great to see you virtually here. I wish yeah, we could be well, in person, but uh, we'll, we'll have to do that sometime soon. This is the longest we talked, even me and we were in the session. I know. We were, we were playing. We didn't have that much time. Yeah. So it's good talking to you, Corey. Yeah, man. Hopefully I'll see you. Uh, we got to, yeah, we, we got to do some more stuff together, man. That'd be fun to play. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, man. Stay safe, man. Yeah, you too. Appreciate it. All right. Peace. All right. Dang it, that dude is cool. Gosh, what a boss. 
I can't believe it. I aspire to be like Steve Jordan someday. Anyways, I, I don't have anything to say. He said it all. So tune in next week. Next week, we've got Vince Gill. Yes. Hold on. Let me say that again. We've got Vince Gill next week. He is one of my absolute favorite guitar players of all time. I already did the interview, and it was awesome. Also, super cool guy. We'll see you next week. Peace. <laughs>